Well, hey there. Thank you so much for downloading and subscribing to our Big Time Talker podcast. We're everywhere now. Apple, iTunes, Spotify, the Blog Talk Radio Network, wherever you get your podcast. If you like what you hear, tell a friend and spread the word. Our podcast is made possible by our friends at speakermatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means if you're a, a platform speaker uh, or maybe you're a meeting planner, you can find one another at the virtual marketplace at speakermatch.com. You may have heard the term, the great resignation. It's affecting all aspects of worker shortages all across the globe. We wanted to talk to somebody who has spent an awful lot of time learning about that and working within that world. Gary Melling is our guest today. And uh, Gary, let's start right there. In just the last year, over 34 million Americans alone left their jobs. A lot more are thinking about it. What do we do about it? Wow. Um, what, it it's a short question, but it's a very complex answer. Sure. Um, so we have a kind of a perfect storm that's been brewing for a couple of decades now. We have, um, if I can just maybe take a moment and give some, some context for how we got to where we are. Of course. Um, 20, uh, I've worked in enterprise recruiting, uh, strategic succession management for executives. I've worked for many of the big brand uh, organizations that, that your listeners and, and viewers would, uh, would recognize. Now, having said that, uh, in part of the work that I've done, I've worked with um, a lot of organizations to help them understand what they can do to make their talent acquisition processes more productive. Um, there's a lot of tools that have been on the market for a long time, and people have just gotten used to using these tools, but the tools themselves haven't really been servicing either the, the corporate client or the job seeker very well. So let me just give you a quick example of that. Probably about 20 or so years ago, we first got into more of a scaled version of, of what we now seem as, see as an applicant tracking system. So if you see a job posted somewhere online, you click on the link, you find out what the job looks like, if you want to apply to it, you're likely going to be submitting your resume and uploading your profile information to what we call an applicant tracking system, an ATS. Okay. The problem with an ATS is that it, it works, uh, it's driven by computers, it's driven by logic. And so what it does effectively is it goes through a resume and it will capture um, basically sound bites, words, keywords that the recruiter is looking for. And, you know, if it's self-authored, uh, people can write whatever they want. Um, you can't blame people for being in one role, wanting to go to another role. It may be in the same company, but often not. And we'll talk about those reasons in just a moment. But if you're going to be applying to an external organization, the applicant tracking system, the ATS is figuratively the gatekeeper. Uh, once the, the job competition has closed, the posting is closed, let's say 30 days, 
the recruiter can go onto the system and try to make sense of whatever tools they're using to consolidate. Maybe they've got 80 applicants, maybe they've got 800 applicants. Um, there is more and more technology available today. I, I was a part of actually creating a bit of that for uh, the US Army, which we, we can maybe talk about later. The, the bottom line is that when you're looking to parse resumes, to search for specific words on a, on a digital resume, um, you're not really getting the full picture of the human. You're, you're not getting any assessment reports. You're not, there's so much to that re can be read between the lines. And frankly, if I want to uh, be a bit verbose, I can exaggerate anything I want, anywhere I want on the resume. And as long as I match the keyword searches, um, you know, I'll show up in a recruiter shortlist. Now to show you how um, I, I worked for many years in military applications and critical applications where uh, you're in a situation, you get one chance to get it right because you're in a hostile situation. And I've adopted that same mindset for pretty much everything I do. Um, but here's, here's the rub. Uh, at one point, uh, what I often do in working with organizations and helping them understand the weaknesses in their talent acquisition tools and processes is I'll go on and I'll apply for a job on their website. They don't, they don't know that necessarily in the beginning, but that's what I'm doing for my own business reconnaissance, if you will. To show you how goofy it can be, I have seen, first of all, the job description for a CEO being two pages and the job description posting for a mail clerk in the mailroom to be 15 pages. <laughs> so where in the universe does that make any sense? So well, let's, just nowhere. <laughs> let's assume we get past that little hiccup. Unfortunately, a lot of times what organizations are also doing is, is pulling their talent acquisition assessment and applicant tracking systems together. And often it's held together. I use this phrase tongue in cheek, but often it's held together with bubble gum and bailing wire. Right. So there's not necessarily a seamless transition for the applicant to go through the various steps. And I've seen you know, I've seen for, let me contrast and compare just to make another example. I was working with uh, uh, a U.S. national telecom carrier uh, who was looking to recruit uh, several hundred people to uh, be employed in kiosks and shopping malls as part of the mo mobile phone planned and you want to change your plan, you want to get a new phone, etc. It took me over two and a half hours to apply for that job. It was paying minimum wage, by the way. And I got kicked off the system out of the six attempts. I was kicked off twice, had to start the process again. So no but, one's going to do that in the real world. Nobody's going to. No. Well, in, by contrast and comparison, I can, if, if I'm interested in simply getting a job, I, I can go on a, a large fast food restaurant site and in 15 minutes apply for a job that also is a minimum wage. But what I found really fascinating is that in that scenario, that employer got back to me online within 30 minutes, acknowledging that they received my resume, saying that they thought I was a good fit for the job based on the profile I had uploaded and so on. So net net, you know, it, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and let me just talk about it from a Machiavellian perspective for a moment. If I truly want to beat the ATS, and I've, I've, I've shown this to corporate recruiters and recruiting teams. And I'm sorry, once again, the ATS stands for? The Applicant Tracking System. Right. So where I submit my resume, what I'll do, and I've done this to prove a point, 
is I'll take my resume and it could be totally unrelated to the job they're hiring for. And I will go to their job posting and I will copy and paste all of the keywords in the job description. And I'll put it in the, in the footer of my resume and I'll make it like a four pitch font and I'll make the pitch white. So it's not visible to the naked eye. And then what I'll do is I'll say to the recruiters, okay, well, where are your top candidates? And they say, oh, your name came up. How did your name come up? And it, it in, evokes this whole conversation. So on top of that, there are other tools that if someone really wanted to get a job, let's say for right now, um, I was between jobs. I had maybe a large gap. Maybe there was a family illness. I mean, there could be a variety of different reasons. If I was looking to present myself better to a recruiter, um, I could very easily go to one of a handful of different sites and I can purchase a, a silver, a gold, a platinum program where they will become my references. They'll actually speak as though, oh, I worked for them. You tell them what dates you wanted to be employed by them, what your job title was, who you reported to, and they will actually lie through their teeth and, and speak to a recruiter on your behalf. So I'm only pointing out some of the crest of the waves, the very high points. This, this industry, there are some well-meaning people and recruiters are hard workers. It, it's a thankless job. It's, I've seen it over and over again, where you see a good recruiter that's, that's gone the full distance on a, on a, you know, a, a search. They've gotten it down to presenting three to five candidates, ideal candidates, and then they get a call back from the client saying, oh, well, we've changed our mind. We're not, we're not going to be pursuing this job uh, staffing opportunity any longer. Let me jump in there, Gary. And, and, um, and by the way, if you're, you're just checking us out on the podcast, Gary Milling is joining us to talk about this incredible great resignation, the worker shortage, what can be done about it. Um, you spend a lot of time working in the realm of, of digital workers and robots and, and all of those sorts of workarounds. And by the way, if you want to check out Gary online, the website is AIinc.cloud, AIinc.cloud. But, but I, I also want to spend some time talking about sort of the reverse, the other end of that coin, and that is these 30-plus million people who just walked away mm -hmm. and, and, you know, what are they doing? How are they feeding themselves? And what can employers really do to get uh, people back into the workforce all across the board, whether it is from the CEO level down to, as you said, the, you know, the, the minimum wage worker? I mean, this is a, it's a huge issue. And, um, and I'm sure our, our listeners probably have run into the same thing that I've run into where, you know, I'm, I'm traveling and, uh, you know, the fast food place is closing early or, mm -hmm. you know, the, the retail store is closing early or opening late or close completely on Tuesday because there just aren't people working. And I don't remember in my lifetime, this being a big issue. Has this happened uh, previously since the, the great depression? Have we ever seen anything like this in America before? Not to this degree, not to this degree. So the previous conversation was, was setting up, the, the tone and demeanor for why people um, typically have a negative experience in applying for jobs and being successful. So you're if, saying, if we, that, Gary, that you believe a lot of people, uh, when they bailed out, they may want to come back, but it's too onerous a, a, a task to get back into the workforce now? That's part of it? That is part of it. That is part of it for sure. Let's um, fast forward a little bit and get to 
the discussion about um, 2008, 2009, subprime, what happened to people, mortgages, homes, foreclosures. The, the problem is that I think a lot of times when we take a look at these issues, most people, um, and, and it's ingrained a lot in society, they're either black hat or white hat. There, there's, it's a black line and it, there's, you're either in the line or you're outside of the line. And what I mean by that is life doesn't often work like that. Why, life is often a wide gray line. And there are nuances within that line that if we ignore them, it will be at our peril. So in the corporate world, and I'm talking corporate, whether I'm talking about a Fortune 500 or a mom and pop shop that's trying to staff people at the, at the drugstore, you know, for the weekend shift or whatever. So there's been this historical um, misalignment between how people, rec how recruiters recruit and how applicants want to be recruited. That's one thing. If we if we take a look at more recent times with um, we've seen uh, the whole situation around the, the pandemic and what's coming out with respect to politics, without, with respect to corporate decisions, policies that affect uh, who can come on site and what conditions they can come on site with. Um, for those people who felt that uh, my, my body, my autonomy, I don't need to share my personal information, my healthcare information with my employer, um, some were, were very true to their core belief and principles and simply left because they did not want to be in that situation. Others, um, believing that the, the uh, healthcare networks and, and politicians had their best interests in place, went ahead with the jabs and have found now that, um, gee, you know, people who got the jabs tend to be getting a little sicker a bit more frequently. Uh, people without the jabs tend to be in a situation where they're working on natural immunity and we're not seeing the same situation with them. There was this kind of reverse discrimination that was going on for quite a while. And as a Canadian living in Canada, I can tell you, up until recently for the last year, I have been not able to get on a plane. I just right. could, could not leave the country. So let's take a look at all of that and wrap it up into what's going on in the corporate side, because we have a situation where over the last, so many things have changed over the last two years. Uh, take a look at just for example, having a floor in an office tower in any downtown in North America. You, you have a lease, you have insurance, you have equipment, you have all those. Now you've got half of your workforce, maybe more, that's working remotely, right. working from home. So you've still got the expenses of all of those, the, the operational expenses and the capital equipment expenses, but you don't have the people consuming the resources. So there's kind of this um, um, uh, added angst that's happening on the resource side. If you're, we also have seen, especially as you said up, up front in the, in the lead in, uh, about 36 million or so have left, uh, Americans have left. Uh, some are tired, some are weary, some are at a point where they were close enough to their retirement, they may have thought, well, I just, I just want to take my package and go. Right. Um, some weren't offered a package. So they're left, you know, trying to fend for themselves and, and potentially go through litigation. Um, it's a tough scenario all the way around, but if you're the CEO of a corporation and you've had, we're seeing across the board, across all industries, not just in Canada or the US, but 
but Europe, Asia, etc., we're seeing that most organizations, and, and it depends, there's variation in there, of course, but generally speaking, the trend seems to be that most workforces are down somewhere between 10 and about 20 to 22%. Now, if you're a CEO and you've got your marching orders from the board of directors and you're, in, you're on point to deliver uh, last year's revenue plus 10%, but you're down 20% in your workforce and you can't attract new people. That's a heavy lift. It, it sure is. And, and for most organizations, despite the, uh, the marketing and, and, and the slicks that they put out about how well they're doing and so on, um, I can tell you there are a lot of major corporations that are, are headed for some pretty dark times. Um, we're seeing it, again, across industries. So how do you then address a deficit in your workforce? Well, if you're, if you're really holistic about how you think of your workforce, you'll think about your workforce, one is yes, you've got employees, but you've got con and those employees are going to be exempt and non-exempt. You've got management and you've got salaried. You may have hourly. You're going to have contractors. You're going to have consultants. Those, those that's part of the natural mix. And, and we typically equate all of that rounded, inclusive group of people as what we call full-time equivalents, FTEs. Okay. So now all of a sudden you you face what we've been going through the last two years you've got as a ceo or, or the c-suite you're on point to deliver x plus 10 percent and you're struggling to figure out how to do it well we're seeing more and more organizations and i'm talking c-level people contacting us saying listen i i know digital workers are a hot topic but what are they are they right for us can we use them? If we do choose to use them, how do we get started? Those are probably the biggest questions that we get right out of the blocks. And let me give you a, a quick um, a quick example of, of a call I received recently from the COO of a mortgage company in, in New England. Okay. Uh, eight years ago, when the COO joined the company, uh, they had 100 underwriters. Um, those underwriters were underwriting basically a mortgage project every hour. So in a standard working business day, 100 underwriters writing one an hour for eight hours a day, you've got about 800 a day being underwritten. However, since then, with the introduction of all of the regulations that federal governments and state governments are bringing in uh, to the financial services industries because of fraud and fraud detection and organized crime and money laundering and uh, risk analysis and so on. They're, they're downloading all of that to the people who are applying for those loans. So for example, uh, 20 years ago, if you applied for a loan, you'd go into the bank, you'd fill out an application probably by hand, you'd submit the paperwork to your local bank representative, they would take it, it would go off for a week and you'd get a phone call saying whether or not you'd been approved. Well, now, by contrast and comparison, uh, because we also work in artificial intelligence and cybersecurity, I can tell you that it's dependent on the organization you're working with. But if you see, uh, it, let's say you want to go for a bank loan or a car loan or whatever it is, if you go onto that website and you start filling in the application, I can tell you, you know, we're, we know of technology that within the 30, first 30 seconds can extract up to 2,000 data points on an individual. Okay. So there's not a human being... Uh, in your experience, if you apply for a mortgage, you apply for an auto loan, uh, there's not a human being that is the, the first 
reader of that application, the first line of defense. Correct. That's all uh, automated and digitized now. So that that's part of the answer, I guess, is is these digital workers that you talk about are these uh, humanoid uh, robots. And, and uh, look, Gary, that goes all the way back to, to Ford and, and uh, you know, assembly lines. This is a, a high-tech version of that. Um, but aren't there certain companies in certain positions where you got to have a real live human being. And in those cases, you know, what do you do? How do you, uh, how do you automate those things? Or are we at a point, because this is what you specialize in where 80, 90% of the workforce issues can be addressed by automation? Well, I think uh, a lot of what happens in any workforce can be automated. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced that if you think of, of activities, business activities that are high volume and repetitive. That is a Flipping perfect burgers at a, uh, at a McDonald's. Well, I mean, we, we actually created a conceptual design for a robotic restaurant um, where it was doing not only flipping burgers, but making salads and doing all kinds of things. Um, uh, so, but I think if I think of a specific industry where they're a little bit more resistant. I don't mean resistant because they're not willing to, but I think it, it requires that personal touch, which over time will be will evaporate as well, is in healthcare. Sure. Now we have a lot of, like if you take a look at the legal profession, uh, financial accounting, uh, any of those kinds of white collar crimes where you have people typically making, you know, multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, those professions are are likely going to take a real clobbering in the next uh, one to three years. Um, it won't all go away, but a lot of it will. Um, in because manuf- those things can be automated. Many because of they can be automated. And, and when we think about automation, there are different levels to automation. So for example, if you're completing an online form for a mortgage application, you're using what we would call structured data. You're, there's, a, there's a form created with fields, and now you're, specific, you're putting your personal information in those fields, which all can be reset, represented effectively by a spreadsheet. That's structured data. But there's also unstructured data. There's a handwritten note on a, on a notepad. There's a, a photograph. There's a, a video. There, there are conversations that have been recorded. Um, and I'm, 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 I'm simplifying the types of data just to, you know, to make it fairly easy to, to follow because there are nuances within all of those as well. And then the last form of data that people would probably be aware of is what we call behavioral data. And behavioral data would be, let's say, included in the engine for Amazon when you buy something or Netflix when you say you like something. You like so, this, you'll probably also like that. So those are the kind of predictive analytics. Now, that's that's from the white collar side. That's from more the consumer side. If we take a look at the industrial side, and if you were to walk into any automotive manufacturing plant, a current automotive manufacturing plant or one that's been upgraded, you'll find that for a year, for probably for better part of two or three decades now, we've had industrial robots, let's say on uh, an auto manufacturer on the paint line. And what they did is they did 3D modeling of a, of a person who was absolutely the best at their job as a human being in, on the paint crew. And they put him in a room 
and, and sensors all over him and or her and was in a situation where they could they could measure everything in three-dimensional space including how they just feathered the the last spray to get that giant shine and shiny uh, luster on on the paint so so that's been around a long time so if we take a look at the, the industrial mechanical that's been covered off if we take a look at the white collars the the um, uh, professional services in in accounting and legal that's been covered and it's only going to get clobbered more and more because we can if you if you're interested in precedent law we can take the top 1000 uh, uh, law cases uh, that address a particular topic, we can analyze it with machine learning, we can index it, and we can run algorithms on it with artificial intelligence. And now uh, we can actually create effectively uh, a digital lawyer. Amazing. Gary Melling is our guest today. We're talking about the shifting workforce in America and around the world in the wake of the great resignation that happened uh, during the pandemic. And now well over 30 million Americans have left work and have not gone back there are worker shortages everywhere. They're affecting everyday life. Uh, Gary specializes in uh, in digital workers and workarounds, humanoid robots, that sort of thing. It's fascinating. You can find out more at AIinc.cloud, AIinc.cloud. Gary, I grew up in the mountains of, of West Virginia in a small coal mining town. And, uh, and as a child there, that was a major employer for the state. It was the major tax driver for the entire state, the mining industry. And I saw the mining industry automate uh, and, and you know, condense the number of people through the use of computers and continuous miners and that sort of thing. It's not uh, pick and shovel the way it was in my grandfather's uh, generation. That's all you know, changed that industry. And certainly there are less miners now, uh, and just as there are less automotive workers and less different things. And yet, if you're a traveler, you know that that in 2022, the airline industry is really struggling yes. because they need staffing. Now, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you began to see the the gate agents go away and, and the use of the screens and, and all that. Uh, but, in, you know, you mentioned healthcare and and uh, you got to have pilots to fly the planes, I guess, in theory. So at, at what point, uh, you know, are we able to take corrective measures with the human element of this thing. And, and, you know, look, maybe that's not completely in your wheelhouse because of your specialization in, in automating processes, but, uh, but it affects us all right now. You know, I, I have some business travel coming up this fall on airplanes and, and I'm dreading it because it seems that, you know, every third person has their flight affected these days. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, Burke, I'm sure, you know, in, in following the news as you do and staying current uh, and so on, you've, you've seen a lot of the news stories coming out with respect to not only the airline industry in general, but the variation between airlines and right. how they affect, how they implement and, and regulate their internal policies. And, and that has a, you know, a, a positive or negative effect on the morale uh, of the, the crews, the flight attendants, the, uh, the pilots and so on. Uh, but also everyone that feeds them, you have to have rash, you have to have food, food tr trucks come and, and, you know, do everything that needs to be done. You've got groomers, you've got security and so on. The fact of the matter is, um, I think if we kind of pare it down to certain things, whether it's the airline industry or the farming industry trying to find pickers for crops, basically uh, we've gotten soft and squishy 
uh, as a human race. And a lot of people, for whatever reasons, just will not do those jobs. I'm not saying they don't need to be done, but, you know, and then when you get into some of the more sophisticated, you know, you're talking about an airline pilot and so on, um, you know, one could argue, I think successfully, that an aircraft, if we take a look at drones as an example, and now they're very affordable, you know, 12 year old kids are flying drones in their backyards, uh, you can basically start from a dead stop, dead st uh, standstill, you can raise up, you can fly wherever you need to go, you can pilot it, you can bring it down. I don't think uh, that it's going to be that long before we're seeing the same kind of thing, uh, much like we're seeing uh, that's happening in navigation for automobiles. Uh, very similar. So in your viewpoint in working where you specialize this, this worker shortage right now, the great resignation is perhaps uh, a temporary thing. And the long-term solution is going to be more and more automation uh, is how we're going to solve this thing. I think so. I really think so. Um, you know, there, uh, one of the, I'll just go back to an example from a few years ago, I was working with an organization who was going to go through a significant layoff. They were laying off about 15% of their workforce. And this was before the, the COVID situation. Um, and they came to me and said, listen, how do we, how do we do this? How, how do we do this and minimize our exposure risk and liability for wrongful dismissals and, you know, all those kinds of things, because there's depending on the industry and the company and the culture, you can almost forecast what percentage of the dismissals will come back with a wrongful dismissal legal case. And sometimes they have merit and sometimes they don't. And that depends on which side of the fence you sit on and so on. I'm not going to get into that, sure. but one of the things I helped them through is we, we built an assessment tool that allowed them to, first of all, identify the people within the organization. If they were going to be terminating people, what we wanted them to be aware of is you need to understand that in that case, if you're going through a significant and formal reduction in force, you have to be prepared to understand that a lot of your top stellar workers are going to leave. So it's not just, you know, taking a look at people who, for lack of a better opinion or perspective, are not performing or not performing as well as they could. When you go through an announcement like that, it affects the entire workforce. So we built an assessment tool for them that would allow them to uh, take one 10-minute assessment and be compared to about 1,200 different jobs as far as wellness of fit goes. And this wasn't using their job title. It wasn't using their resume. It was basically doing a profile of their competencies, their attitudes, behavior, skills, competencies, and knowledge. And from that, we could give them a rank-ordered list of the careers that they would, or jobs that they would be well-suited for. So my counsel to this particular client was, let's build this tool, let's use it, and, and let's just measure what we anticipate and compare what we anticipate the number of wrongful dismissal cases you would normally get to what will happen after we go through this exercise. And we, we did exactly that. Uh, there were, I think, 15%, which represented, I think, about 600 people. Um, so we went through the whole exercise and uh, fast forward to the end of it. Um, I had a, a, a meeting with the CEO and he was quite pleased with how everything went. About two weeks later, I got a call from their lawyer and I thought, uh-oh, 
here what, it comes. Yeah, something, something's gone sideways here. What, what's going on? And actually, the lawyer was calling me to tell me. He said, I don't know how you did it, but we've not had one wrongful dismissal out of this whole situation. And I said, well, could it be because what we did is repositioned your organization instead of becoming perceived as heartless and ruthless? What we did is we built some change management communications. We helped the workforce know in advance that it was unavoidable for a variety of different reasons. And we gave them legitimate reasons. And then what we said, there's going to be a process, but in this process, we're going to help you transition back into the workforce. So it's not as though here's your check, there's the door, you know, what's your hurry kind of thing. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. It was more, we're a culture of benevolence. We care for people. We seriously care for people. So by going through this assessment and them seeing, okay, out of these 1,200 jobs, my top 10 are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Wait a second. I, I know I would be a good fit for this one because of my competencies, but I'm, I'm not so much interested in that. But this one over here, you know, on the other hand, I'm a good fit with my competencies. I can reinvent myself. I don't have to go through as much training or formal education to be a strong candidate for that role in, in another organization. And so my story back to the attorney was, well, what we did is we took a very human approach to solving the problem. It, yes, it was about numbers, but what a lot of senior management and C-level folks don't seem to really understand even today is that without the right messaging, without the, 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 the most scarce commodity in the market today is truth. Wow. That, People uh, are starved for the truth. That's very true in a lot of ways, in including in ways. our politics in this country. Oh, uh, for sure. For sure. So, so, so Gary, let, let me ask you this question then. When, when you see uh, this, this, you know, mass exodus of people from the workforce, but you also see, uh, an awful lot of folks who began working from home during the pandemic and employers now, as you alluded to earlier, who have, you know, a big, you know, floors of office space that they're paying through the teeth for in major metropolitan areas. Um, and they need to get people to come back. Anecdotally, I'm hearing people are just not coming back that, you know, you say, oh, you, you got to come back to the office. And they say, no, I don't. I'm resigning. Um, do we ever see, and you have to crystal ball this a little bit, uh, you know, the workforce coming back in office the way they were pre-pandemic, or are those days over forever? I, In my humble opinion, those days are gone. I think what we're going to see, and, and again, I'm, I'm really kind of going out on a limb here. This is the crystal ball. There's no science. This is just a humble opinion. Sure. But it's based on working with, you know, some some pretty large organizations and multiple industries in different parts of the world. And I'm seeing a similar story start to emerge. I think one of the biggest challenges, first of all, I think a lot of a lot of organizations are going to be imploding. Uh, despite the posturing they're doing in annual, you know, um, audit statements and annual reports and so on. Yeah, the, if you if you really kind of lift up the covers and peek about what's going on underneath, I, I think there are other stories there that are and, and they're typically driven by politics and things like that. Um, I, I have to say that, you know, as we think of the workforce of the future, it needs to be a blend of people 
real human beings. It needs to include uh, invisible digital workers. It may need to include a humanoid robot. It may, they're all, it, it, it's going to take a very eclectic way. But if organizations are just trying to say, hey, I want to get back to the way it was, they're already going to be left in the dust. That's not going to happen. So I think what you're going to see, and just take a look at the implications in the real estate market uh, from a commercial real estate perspective, with so many office towers becoming more and more vacant over time, I think the government's going to have to take a look at this and say, well, okay, we've, we've done bailout packages. How do we deal with this? One of the things they may consider is taking certain floors of those towers and, and converting them to either low-income subsidized or luxury accommodations where where people are trying to find a place to live now the only problem with luxury accommodations is if you don't have a paycheck if you've been driving your mercedes-benz and you're making four hundred and fifty thousand a year and your profession the writing is on the wall you know you need to start thinking about repurposing yourself now having said that in the example i was giving about the mortgage company uh when I first got that call, the COO said to me, uh, we've got 100 underwriters. They're down to writing two projects a day because of Sarbanes-Oxley and legislation, compliance, reporting, and so on. We need to get back to where we were to eight a day. She, he said, I'd like to hire another 100 underwriters. I said, okay, um, I understand that's one way you could solve that problem, but why would you do that? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you have 100 underwriters now. They're all intimately familiar with the process of underwriting. I said, you've shared with me on the phone that one of the areas you're really getting uh, hammered in is in your customer service and your customer reviews. You've got clients leaving you. So I said, would you be open to an idea of digital workers? He said, sure. What would that be? I said, why don't we take the 100 underwriters that you have? Why don't we take 70 of them? and cross-train them to be customer service reps. They know the process. They, what they're, they're missing is an opportunity to work with your customers to share the deep knowledge that they have and to expedite problem solving. So instead of having someone as a customer service rep, a CSR one, answering the phone with a script and you know they, they said this, I checked that box and now I say that, um, you actually could have level two and level three customer service reps where they're these experienced very experienced underwriters. I said, now the remaining 30 that are left, what we would do with them is we would introduce digital workers to automate basically the entire underwriting process. And those 30 that are left over would have the ability to do manual override on anything that the AI was doing. So you can enhance your level of quality you can enhance your customer service. You can retain your customers better. You can deliver better customer service while you're retaining them. There's so many advantages to this. So basically, that's where we are right now. We're just we're just figuring out how we're going to move forward with them to implement. Uh, and and sorry, by the way, once you've created a digital worker to to work as a mortgage underwriter, and you have built a robot, you know, it usually takes, I'm going to say, depending on the complexity, we can build a digital robot, uh, sorry, a digital worker uh, within two to four weeks. So it's a fairly short timeline. But once we get that final digital worker created, if they need not one, but 20 or 200, that's basically a click of the mouse. That's done. Well, I, can, I can, Gary, visualize listeners to this podcast, the Big Time Talker podcast, 
right now yelling at their telephone, no, we don't need more automation. No, we need to be able to talk to a real person on the phone and not get stuck in the in the phone tree. So I think what you just said there um, would be key to the the whole shooting match. And that is, uh, you know, enhancing with, with uh, digital workers and these humanoid robots, which I want to ask you about, but you still have to be able to get a real live decision-making human being uh, on the line with you, you know, pretty damn quick if things go sideways. But so, there is actually, I, first of all, thank you for raising that because that's a, a really key point. Uh, Burke, how I would address that is I would say, if you have good artificial intelligence and you're using good structured, unstructured and behavioral data, then your algorithm should be able to tell you if you've got someone applying for something online, that they're having a trouble. You shouldn't have to wait for them to call customer service. In fact, proactive customer service should be automated through your digital workers because they're monitoring the process of the individual going through that application online. And they should know, well, they paused here. They're, you know, they paused for three minutes when this should only take 10 seconds. Or they've paused here for five. Now, have they abandoned the application? Uh, wait a sec. They've already given us their contact information. Let's automate a call. Let's be proactive in it's how we actually service. Yeah, you uh, you specialize in these uh, you call them humanoid robots. And, and you mentioned early in the conversation about and I don't disagree, by the way, that, that Americans, uh, for the most part, have gotten sort of soft and squishy. You know, the, the local pizza place in, in my neighborhood uh, just a couple of months ago was offering a five hundred dollars sign on bonus to come in and deliver pizzas. And I thought I'm giving up the podcast. I'm going to deliver pizzas. That's great. That's great bread. Um <laughs> So the, these humanoid robots, uh, would they be able to take the place of folks that, uh, that are, you know, agricultural workers that, that pick, they take the place of the kid that, that makes pizzas? What do humanoid robots really do? What are their capabilities? Oh, wow. Um, well, you know, again, some of the, the projects I work in are more, on the one end, they can be sort of military-based um, okay. I, I, I can't talk too much about that stuff, but there, there's a lot of stuff that go that is happening, has been going on for a long time. Um, uh, and usually the military gets involved in things for specific reasons, but the advantage to that technology is that over time, the spinoff of how they've applied that technology in a hostile environment can be applied in business and culture and society and so on. A consumer application eventually can come out of that. Absolutely. So that's one end of the spectrum. Uh, the other end of the spectrum. Well, uh, let, me, you know, let me jump in there. Let me ask you, sir, are we talking about uh, humanoid robots fighting wars? And saving lives? Uh, if, if that's necessary, absolutely. Uh, there is technology right now that can do that. Um, but a, a, a way to avoid that is to be um, a sophisticated, uh, elegantly covert um, coder that can get into a hostile actor's infrastructure and we're seeing this all the time, whether we talk about colonial pipeline or, you know, there are a variety of different, you know, buzzwords and examples that come up. Um, if you want to avoid sending uh, humanoid robots or human beings to a hostile environment, uh, one option is to preempt everything by using digital technology to create havoc and chaos in the hostile actor's own environment. 
uh, and to do it without leaving a trace because the, the, the art of that work is that if you, a lot of people think that, you know, with cybersecurity, the worst thing that can happen is that your data is stolen. That's not the worst thing that can happen. I mean, it's, it's a pain in the bum and it's an inconvenience, but the bottom line is that you do backups. So at worst, you'll, you'll lose 24 hours worth of data. The most egregious thing that can happen is that a hostile actor can come in and rearrange your data and you don't know it. Now you're making business decisions on false data and decisions that they probably want to steer you in a particular direction to make. Okay. So there, there are, uh, there's just so many applications of this. Um, um, I've seen, I, I've seen groups of AI scientists uh, that generally work in, in drone technology and, and uh, uh, refining drones so that they are very almost micro uh, and yet can carry a charge and are using facial recognition and, you know, can actually in a crowd identify a particular person that they might want to terminate and, and go through that exercise. So that technology has been around for at least five years. Um, it's not spoken of a lot, but it's there. And it's only a precursor of many, many other things to come. So when we talk about workforces, I, I, I like to think of rather than replacing humans, I, my first vote would be to augment a human workforce with technology. And if that human workforce uh, is, is a well-designed workforce, it has the right makeup of, of employees and contractors and consultants, and again, exempt, non-exempt, et cetera, et cetera. You, you can deliver on your value proposition to your clients consistently and scale over time. When that mix is out of whack, uh, there, you know, the largest operating expense of, of most corporations, uh, which is about 65 to 70%, is their workforce. You take of a course. look at salaries and 20% for benefits, Ben admin, you know, all the other things that take into account. And then you've got all of the other hidden expenses that companies don't acknowledge. Okay, so a new employee comes in, they get signed on, they, they get their computer, they get a phone number, they get an extension. Well, who's doing all that work? Right. You know, someone has to do it. It's a cost, right? And so when they leave, they're not just leaving, they're not just losing, the company's not just not paying the salary and the benefits. There are all these other costs that have been backed up that, that will also follow. So, um, you know, in a, in a world where people live on sound bites and rather than read the book, they just read the flap of a book uh, and then think all of a sudden they've become a, an expert in a particular thing. It's very hard to have a meaningful discussion where you can provide the context of the situation, what caused the situation to happen, and then from there to look at new technologies um, without constraint to identify a solution that would work for that client. One of the biggest uh, sort of watchouts I have with my clients is when we get into blue skying, is uh, to trying to think of, uh, okay, if you could design the future for your organization, what would it look like? And often what happens is in the, at least the first iteration, they try to define the future, but they try to define it with one foot still in the past. Well, that's and the sort of constrained. That's right. That's right. That's the human condition, right? That That's part of what we need. So trying to get in, instilled within them a discipline that says, look, I, I don't care about how we got here or where we are. I mean, I do, but if this exercise is to focus on the future, how do I take an absolutely pristine white piece of paper 
that has not been stained by anyone previously? How do I articulate what the future of this organization will look like? And when we can get them to that point, there's a there's a whole aha that goes on, this epiphany that actually starts lighting off a series of epiphanies on what it is they can do. Now, the reason why this is important and germane, because we talked about the Great Reset and in particular the Great Resignation, we have to remember that a lot of the senior people that are running corporations, not just in the US or Canada, but globally, they've they've gotten to that point in their career where they've got 30, 40 years on, and they may have been wildly successful, insanely successful, but they got there using, generally speaking, old business world paradigms. Now, if I've been at a job for 35 years, I've got a year to go for retirement. And everything I've done has been built on old management reporting styles and structures and solid lines and dotted lines or however you want to explain it. And now all of a sudden, I have this new technology I'm being introduced to that can significantly reduce my headcount, improve my productivity, my, my revenues and my profitability, and will even be better over time. The challenge I have as, as a senior executive would be to say, well, you know what, I've been at this 35, 40 years, I want to leave a legacy. I want to be known for something. I want to have someone say something. When they say my name, I want them to identify it with something positive. I think what's happening, and this is entirely, again, due to the human condition, I think in most cases, is that many of these executives don't understand that by doing nothing, they're still going to talk about you. <laughs> okay. I love that. But what they want to do is kick the can down the road and let it be, you know, whoever replaces me be their problem. They don't right. realize that they're already contributing to the demise of their own legacy. Sure. sure. So there's this, there's, it's a very odd time. I mean, uh, uh, we all, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure everyone listening has their own story and their own version of, of weirdness that's happened over the last couple of years. And, and it's, it's been very real. It's affected families and relationships. This is not just an academic exercise. This is life. You think deeply about these things. And you, you mentioned that we live in a soundbite world. So as we wrap up, I'm going to give you the opportunity to weigh in and get outside your comfort zone. I'm going to ask you some really pointed questions, and I need really short soundbite answers. Let's you do ready? it. All right. Gary Melling is our guest today from AIinc.cloud. He specializes in helping companies with these worker shortages. Uh, all right, let's start with this. Uh, Gary, how long before we see uh, uh, you know, automated vehicles on our roads that don't require people? Oh, two years. Trucking, transportation? I mean, it's happening now, but we're talking about scale. I mean, so it's common, I, I would assume. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, give me, if, if you're a college student, you're, you're going into your freshman year in college, give me three, four, five occupations that will not be automated, that where, you know, you're pretty guaranteed to have a job. You know, maybe you're a, a guitar player. <laughs> you know, it <laughs> may be a while. What What would you advise a college freshman to go into so that they have some job security? I think um, the last bastion of artificial intelligence nuancing is going to be through behavioral data 
which really means how do you in how does artificial intelligence interact with a human so the human doesn't know that it's artificial intelligence right. and, and what in, are those jobs those jobs to me again I'll, I'll go back to probably a fair number in healthcare there are certain things we've we've already done conceptual models for automating let's say um uh the operating room uh in in a hospital or uh because there's a lot of physical movement and measurement and equipment that can be used but when you're doing that follow-up that face-to-face -face rehab um you know uh if you're involved in any kind of rehab post-accident where you have to be involved with people and and you know moving them and flexing them um physical therapy occupational therapy all right the other side of the coin um where do you not want to be working in uh, if you're looking to keep working in that career in five years, um, be automated out. Yeah, I, I well, you hit one was the trucking industry with telematics. Uh, that's going to be largely, largely hit. Um, uh, and this may come as a bit of a, a downer for some of the white collar professionals. But I believe if you're engaged in in uh, law practice, if you're an accountant, um, if you're if you're doing something that has been um, uh, traditionally multiple, multiple years of education and this fraternity of professionals and so on and, and colleges that oversee you, I think a lot of those jobs are, are going to be taking a massive hit. And not only because of automation, but because we've learned over the last two years that what we hear isn't always true. And I said earlier that the truth is the most precious commodity in the world today. So as truth comes out and, and people, professionals, organizations, careers, colleges, universities start to see what's happening and how it's going to affect their intake rates and the courses they're going to teach, which, by the way, most of them will be offline. Uh, so a lot of this, again, commercial real estate, what's going to happen to all that kind of stuff. So I think those are, those are the professions. I think, you know, property management, um, if you're a large commercial property manager, in person of, universities, you mentioned, you think that a lot of university learning is going to be online. I, I truly do. Yeah. Yeah. I was involved in, in actually one of the first, uh, online education programs where we, uh, uh, we trained uh, nuclear engineers and certified uh, programs back in 1990, and they could actually get a degree uh, uh, through that program. So uh, I'm seeing now it's just becoming so commonplace. And by going from formal public schools to homeschooling or to distance education through the public schools, I think we're ingraining in children the notion that, well, I don't need to be in a classroom. Uh, now, there's the whole social interaction side, which can can starve a childhood development. Um, so we need to be sure that there are other ways to address that. But, but certainly the educational field, I think gone, I think if not gone, certainly going are the days where all the letters after your name meant something, That's you know, it. I, uh, I could talk to you about this for hours. You, uh, you are something of a futurist and, and uh, certainly implementing these things in today's world, if done correctly, can make it better for all of us. Gary Melling, our guest today on the program, AIinc.cloud is the website, AIinc.cloud. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Eric, it was my pleasure. Thank you. That's Gary Melling checking in from the Great White North in Canada. Uh, we love the conversation. We love that you're here with us today. Thank you, Speaker Match, for making the show possible. From our studios here in Washington, D.C., I'm Burke Allen. For our guest, Gary Melling, thanks for listening. Now go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.